This is CX of M Radio, the voice of customer experience professionals. is your host, Darren Hood. Thanks, everybody, for taking the time to join us on today. And as always, a very special welcome to those of you who are joining us for the first time. Again, haven't recently come out of a really long series where we were talking about emotional intelligence. We did a little potpourri. Then we had Ben Woods, one of my former professors, on last week. And we're going back to the well to talk about some of these awesome voices or bring in some of these awesome voices in the world of user experience for another talk and shop segment. And I have brought in someone and she doesn't know this. I'm about to, I'm about to hit her and she's probably gonna start laughing here. Uh, somebody who's becoming one of my favorite people in a very short time in the, in UX circles is Karen Lynn. Uh, who is a, a UX practitioner. I'm not going to talk about any of the details because I let everybody introduce themselves, but I am excited to have Karen Lynn on the show today to to share her take on things going on in UX circles. And we'll have the same series of questions. And as always, we'll probably go off the beaten path and that's fine too. But introducing and glad to have again with me, Karen Lynn. Take it away, Karen, and tell people, as Debbie says often, why they should care and who you are. Thank you, Darren. Um, really appreciate you creating this opportunity for me to come on and, and share my experience. Um, and um, and I'm hoping that uh, there's something here today that you know everyone can take something away. Oh, I'm sure that it definitely will. Definitely will. Yeah, so we're going to start off. I'm going to dive right into the old talking shop script. Uh, and again, we'll, we'll go off the, go off the beaten path here and there. Certain things come on, feel free to bring out your soapbox. We love soapboxes. The people who listen to this show love soapboxes. So that's okay. We'll do that. But we're going to go back to the, that same question. I start off with everybody. Um, how did you get into UX? How did you get, how long have you been doing it? And how did you get in? What was your light bulb moment that, that caused you to embrace the discipline? Yeah, uh, I would say, well, I always say to people, because um, a lot of people will, you know, this is like the the question that, the first question that I get from so many people is like, well, how, how did you get into UX? Um, and I always have to start by saying that my path was actually rather rare and unique in that I, was able to go to school for human factors, mm-hmm. um, uh, which was called engineering psychology um, at my at my school. Um, so I actually went straight into doing UX work uh, when I graduated. Nice. Um, but even even before that, I was very lucky growing up <clears throat> that um, you know it was ni- 1996. I'm going to date myself here. <laughs> <laughs> I'm in. <laughs> I'm in sixth grade. 
<laughs> and I remember the very first moment that I, you know, right clicked and view source <laughs> on a web page. And, you know, that was my first exposure to HTML. And I started teaching myself HTML mm-hmm. and building, um, you know, little uh, websites for fun from scratch. Um, and I remember, you know, growing up with the internet in a sense, and, and I'm in the category of elder millennials. So like I, <laughs> um, which is, you know, I'm not a millennial fully, but, um, but I still am technically, but we, you know, came of age as the internet was coming of age. Um, and, and I remember, you know, being a, you know, a sixth grader and kind of my first exposure to the, the to the power of the internet. And I was like, this is, this is a game changer, right? Like I knew (laughs) even then um, that the potential to change how people had access to information and knowledge and to be able to share that information and knowledge globally, right? Like, I mean, that's, um, that's huge, right? That, that, that can change just, um, you know, the way we connect with each other in different countries um, all over the world um, and the way we share, um, you know, our wisdom, right? And, and now we have platforms like, you know, YouTube, we can do podcasts. Yep. Um, I mean, there's, <laughs> I mean, it's, it's all because of this underlying technology that allows us to, to do that. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, I, I definitely... Um, kind of went the path of just tinkering um, in in the uh, collecting like animated gifts, making little pages. Like you know, I um, built a, a tribute page to Aaliyah um, in, um, when I was in high school, um, and um, and then and I also eventually taught myself um, uh, digital photography um, yeah. as well as using Photoshop. And so I then, you know, started dabbling and creating my own graphics and things like that. Um, And um, was the first when I was in high school to run a online campaign um, for an election, which I won. And and really, I think the only reason why was because at the time, you know, the only rule was you were not allowed to pass out printed flyers to advertise your campaign. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, But there were no rules at the time saying that you couldn't do it over text or online, like digitally. Right. So I actually was like, all right, well, let me see, let me just try and create my own digital campaign um, to get the word out there. And, and I, I really believe that that was what worked. Um, And, um, and I still believe in many ways that innovation does require us to think about how do we do things differently from the way everyone else is doing. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and for me, that's where the power of the user-centered design ethos of UX comes in, right? Because it's only when we take the time and invest in being with people that we can really find out what is really happening. We can really understand and get at what are the underlying truths to people's experiences using mm-hmm. our products or services or, you know, being part of a system. Um, and, um, and that, that like to me has always been the core of um, why I was drawn to, to doing this work. Um, and I just really like, I happened to luck out 
I, I went to college thinking I wanted to be pre-med biology major. <laughs> um, and, um, and, you know, sort of like a combination of things putting me in the right direction eventually. Um, I bombed my um, molecular biology class <laughs> and was like, okay, well, maybe, you know, there's another aspect to the healthcare industry that, I could be better suited towards that didn't involve molecular biology um, or, you know, the hardcore sciences. Um, and, um, and that was actually how I also uh, came across my second major, which was in public health. Mm-hmm. Um, Cause, and then that was when I learned, Oh, like there's another aspect of health, which is preventative care. And how do we think about people's behaviors um, protective factors, risk factors that lead to positive or negative health outcomes. Um, and then for me, the other thing um, I was doing at the time when I first got into college was I was still building websites, but this time for student organizations that mm-hmm. never had one before. Um, and in doing so, I met um, some upper uh, classmen in, in one of my groups and she pointed out, she's like, oh, you like building websites. So like, I have to do this for my major. Right. And it was a user interface design class that she was taking at the time. And I was like, what, there's a major for, for, what, I, for what I'm doing. I was like, so, I, I mean, I was so surprised cause I had never heard of this before. Um, and um, so, and, and to me, you know, human factors, human centered design uh, is very correlated to public health because they're both about how do we, look at systems and the design of those systems um, to make sure that we're putting people on the right path, right? The path that we want them to be in, that we're reducing negative health outcomes, we're reducing accidents, we're reducing um, errors, right? Or we're, uh, I mean, we're reducing all sorts of undesired outcomes, right? Um, And so I've, I've taken that with me throughout my journey ever since college um, through through all my different roles. That's fantastic too. You mentioned something. I know we were, a few of us were talking about recently and I, I touched on it during my potpourri ses- uh, session, some of the hidden aspects of UX. Some of the things, it, it, you talk about UX to certain people and they want to talk about the tools. Uh, they want to talk about, so you say UX, they say Figma, you know, the whole word association, it goes askew. Uh, we're talking about UX, we're not talking about Figma, but that's what people do. You just mentioned mm-hmm. some of the things. I talked about uh, error mitigation and risk mitigation as two mm-hmm. of the hidden factors associated with UX that people just don't cover. And, and, and when hearing what you just said makes me think about how you know, when people do that type of work and they look at UX from the angle, the angle that you just presented it from, it, it shows how critical, how important of a discipline this can really be. It's not you just come in and just haphazardly do something, but we need to be engaged. We need to be focused. We need to understand the gravity of the work that we're doing and the value and the potential value. And, and that's something that's sobering to me. Well, I think about that is very sobering, especially if you work in health arenas, we're talking life and death. We're talking the difference between somebody losing a leg when they came in to get, to, to have their tonsils removed or whatever, you know, I'm being really facetious when I say that, but you know, people, I've heard the stories about people coming in for one thing to the hospital and leaving with something else being done that wasn't even on, on the plate. And, and it, 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 you know, I think about the, the story in the beginning of the 
the inmates that are running the asylum. And it talked about how that the plane crash that takes place and it was totally avoidable. And it turned out to be a UX related issue. So it just makes me think about the soberness that we impact lives and it should make us settle more and have a certain state of mind where we're doing the work and, and really take it seriously. And, and I, I probably corny of me to say it, but we got, we got to uh, really fall in love with the discipline. There are so many benefits. Everybody benefits when we fall in love with the discipline. If you just want to be a UXer, but you don't love the work, it's going to be a disconnect. And then who's going to be impacted by that disconnect? So, but uh, some people see that as corny on my, from my perspective, but uh, that's, that's how I feel about it. No, I mean, I think I totally agree that you have to find your why. I mean, we talk about finding the why all the time, yep, right? Yep. Um, and I think one of the most important people to ask that question is yourself or ourselves of the why of what it is that we are doing in our discipline. Um, and I remember at the time when I had picked my majors, people did ask me, they're like, why, why would you pick two like totally seemingly unrelated <laughs> subjects um, to, to do a double major in. And, um, and I, I just, I, I knew then, um, which is, you know, more clear to me now, now that we do see the harm of technology um, and, and particularly for me, it's the seeing the rate of change that has been introduced by technology. And I mean, like not even internet technology, I mean, even like machine technology, right? Uh, The impact on our environment, the impact on people and societies, the way, you know, our families, the way it's, it's impacted family structures. Um, It's impacted the way we relate to each other as people. Um, That, rate of change is happening faster and faster now. Yep. yep. I mean, it's like exponentially <laughs> increasing at this point. And at no point has anyone stopped to think about or has really, you know, raised a hand to be like, wait, is this maybe maybe this is just too much change. Maybe this is why we're all losing our minds right now. Is <laughs> because we cannot handle <laughs> Like our brains, you know, like our brains, our social fabric just cannot handle this amount of change all at one time. Um, and, and for me, this is what UX for me has become now, right? Like seeing the impact um, and the role that our industry plays in the technology mm-hmm. sector um, that we have used our powers for seemingly good um, or the name of progress. Um, But if we take a step back and we look at, well, who's measuring the harm? Who's measuring, you know, the, the inconvenient truths of, of what's actually happening. Right. And, and where do we, where do we stand in that, in our responsibility um, in our own work um, and and into society like that to me right now, like, this is the crux of how I think about our industry and where we're at. And I, and I get like, you know, there's, <clears throat> excuse me, there's, we, there's so many debates in our industry right now, right? Like, 
everything from which tool is better, (laughs) (laughs) um, you know, like, you know, what, what research methods are better or, you know, what, what our job titles should be and, and et cetera. But, um, but I'm, I, I mean, part of why I'm, I'm hoping to be here today is sort of be that voice of, we need to look at the bigger picture too, mm-hmm. right? Like what is happening across the globe <laughs> and not just within our own little bubbles, yep. um, particularly within the tech industry. Um, and, and I hope that, more of us take opportunities, you know, seek out opportunities to understand what is happening outside of our, just, you know, outside of our companies, outside of our teams, outside of our target audiences even. Um, and, and that we really make the time to have those conversations and, and to look at what's really happening. Absolutely. Absolutely. I'm going to move on to another question here. You, you already talked about how you developed your expertise a little bit. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, to uh, skip a little forward there. And I want to pinpoint one aspect of that. Or did we? Maybe, maybe we didn't. Maybe this is good. So sure. I, I was thinking about the fact that, folks, Karen is a CUA. She is a Certified Usability Analyst. I did get that acronym correct, right? Right. And, and it, so I'm, I'm actually sort of taking one of the questions and I'm veering off to the side a little bit because I think sort of a hot topic and I did another show earlier today and we were talking about this so it's fresh on my mind but the the educational paths that people are choosing today they don't realize that they the people don't realize that they don't have the ability to properly choose an educational path uh and and so people are opting for whatever in the process when I see the CUA in your link, I look at your LinkedIn profile, I see the CUA. What was it that made you want to pursue a certified usability analyst? Um, I call it credentials. Um, well, I mean, I mean, I think quite simply at the time, um, there were, I think this was in 2009 that I took um, the certification test. Um, there weren't other certifications I was aware of at the time, (laughs) (laughs) to be honest. Um, And one of my colleagues was studying and like taking the class Mm -hmm. and to take the test. Um, And for me, I was like, well, you know, I had asked to look at, you know, what the curriculum was. And I was like, okay, well, I pretty much had already studied this at the undergraduate level. Um, And so I was like, well, let me just try taking the test and see if I really do know the material. <laughs> so, um, so I opted to take just the test, mm-hmm. right? Cause they, they have that option. Um, and even as I was studying on my own for the test, um, I realized uh, like I was going through, they actually, at the time, Human Factors International, um, I don't know if they still do this, but they had like a glossary of terms that yep. you can like kind of study on your own. Yep. And, um, and I actually pointed out that they had incorrectly defined one of the terms. <laughs> so, um, and then I was like, well, I'm paying for this myself. Right. So, um, so I had asked them if, you know, they could give me a discount for pointing out this, this typo or this error in the, actually it was a flat out error, um, in the, in the definition of the term. Um, and they were super, I mean, they were super gracious that they let me do that. Um, 
And um, yeah, so I mean, that, I mean, I don't have a really, I feel like I don't really have a good answer to that, to that question really other than I wanted to see if my human factors degree, kind of like how it's stacked up against mm-hmm. another institution's, you know, understanding or standards for, for usability. Um, and I mean, I have done other certifications since then that are not directly related to UX, um, just because I really do value interdisciplinary study. Mm-hmm. And I and yep. I feel like, um, I mean, th- actually one of the things I tell people who are getting into the, the field of UX from other industries, other jobs is, that's great. I mean, that's fantastic because I think it's very important that as a UX professional, we are able to draw on experiences that are outside of the tech bubble, right? Like that makes us better actually in Mm -hmm. in what we do. Um, And, um, and and again, you know, not uh, doing everything we can to not have self-induced tunnel vision, I think it's, is always helpful. Um, and even more important, really, I think for, for folks in UX. Yeah, that's great. And, and, and I'll, I'll, uh, I think I can sort of fill a, what you might perceive to be a gap uh, for the listeners is that, sure. so you got that certification in 2009. Uh, something I've been talking about a lot lately is that misinformation in UX didn't really exist until 2011, 2012. So you could go and do the certification and you're in a lot, a lot better shape. You could pick up a book and it would build on your acumen. You could look at websites back then and, and you would become better at what you did. You could ta- you could go to practically any conference and you would come away a sharper or a better professional because of the things that you were exposed to. And even back then, it's my understanding and somebody else had to tell me this, that because I didn't do Nielsen Norman until later in, in my own life, um, that Nielsen Norman used to be have a proctored exam similar to what Human Factors did, and and now it's open book. So just oh. for people who are trying to trying to decide, which is part of the reason I I sort of surprised you with that question, I know, but I know some people are trying to figure out what should I do from an ed- educational standpoint, where should I go? If I, I constantly get people asking me on LinkedIn, oh, what, what certification would you recommend? And, and sometimes I just fly out, tell them, why do you want a certification? So do you, and I, I will ask people, do you want a certification or do you want to be a better professional? Because having one doesn't necessarily mean the other. And, and then the questions usually they stop and they freeze and they go, oh, I wasn't expecting you to respond that way. Yeah, because I'm here to give you a, mm-hmm. a, a basically a quote unquote expert response in that make sure even if you do go get a certification, definitely not trying to discourage anybody from doing that, but I want to make sure that folks keep your ducks in a row and don't put the cart before the horse. Uh, I do believe that HFI, I do see it more valuable. I have seen instances where employers are actually looking for HFI certified people. I do not see people looking for, I have not, I don't know if anybody else has, I don't know if you have, Karen, but I don't see employers asking for NNG certified people. And I have two, I have two NNG certifications and to my knowledge, neither one of them have benefited me. 
uh, in my career. But then again, I might be an outlier because I also have two. I also have two master's degrees. <laughs> so maybe the certification doesn't mean anything because I have the master's degrees uh, because people are going to look at that first. But for those of you that are considering certifications, you know, make sure that you that you're looking at it the right way. Don't don't be so certification driven that you're forgetting what the name of the game really is. Why are you getting a certification? Because you want to be better. So don't don't focus on the certification. And I talk to people also. They'll graduate from the Google program, and then they'll say, "I'm Google certified now." And I said, "No, you're not." And what do you mean? I have the certificate. I say, "Yes, you do. You have, you have a, a certificate of completion. You're not certified." And then they stop, and I'm like, "Okay, you were you thought that the whole time." From the time you were considering it to the time you enrolled to the time you were doing the courses. And you, and I told a person once, do you really think you got certified in a course where your assignments were graded by peers? That's not going to happen. And, and Google was at least smart enough to not do that. So uh, I always wanted an HFI certification. I might go, and I love the fact too, I almost forgot to mention this. And I love that you said it, that you just take the test. You can, if you feel you're ready. You pay a different amount, but you have to, you do have to pay. You still pay, but you can pay and take the test. If you feel you have the knowledge, then go for it. And you will find out, just like Karen just said, you'll find out if you know what you think you know <laughs> when you go to take that test. Uh, whereas HFI, you have to take the, or not HFI, NNG, you have to actually take the, the uh, classes. You are not eligible to take the certification test in NNG unless you take the classes. So they're going to get four, five, six thousand dollars $6,000 from you versus I think it was seven fifty last I saw for HFI and just taking the test because you're going to pay something, but at least you don't have to do that. And you'll have something that has a little bit, a little bit more oomph to it. So I just wanted to mention that that's, that's a recommendation for me. And uh, that's just how I feel about it for anybody that might be curious about that. But back into the questions. What right now is your fondest memory as a UX professional? What stands out? For me, anytime I get to speak the truth and poke holes in people's assumptions about their solution or their process. Um, mm -hmm. That's a win for me. Um, I mean, yeah, I mean, I, I would, but if I had to pick one, um, I'm trying to think of one. Uh, like, okay, so maybe this kind of touches upon the whole, um, the, the UX erasure theme yes 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 um a little bit because this actually happened to me when i was working for an agency and oh and actually i i wanted to also say that i was really lucky that when i graduated from school i went i was able to work for an agency that at that time and apparently only ever at that time, period of time, in per period in time, um, we had an amazing mix of developers, graphic designers, mm -hmm. UX generalists, is what, you know, the role was called back then. Um, 
statisticians, which are now called data scientists, (laughs) (laughs) Um, like it was just, it was like a rock star team of people from all of these different disciplines working together to build um, internet application solutions. Okay. Right. And, um, and that really helped me, I think, right out of the gate um, when I was graduating to, to develop my acumen um, and to really understand the entire product development life cycle, like everything that goes into it to the point where I was able to bring my knowledge and expertise to that process and say, okay, here is where we need to make this more user-centered, right? Here are all the different ways that um, user-centered design can be injected in the process. Um, And that included at the time um, for me was I was writing the QA test scripts, the the manual test scripts, um, and doing the actual manual QA testing. Um, so I was sitting side by side with the developers as they were coding. Um, anytime they ran into an issue, like a limitation, um, or a gap in the documentation, I was there to fill in those gaps for them, right? They, they, as the developers did not need to guess or make shit up (laughs) and then say, all right, we're just going to make this a link or we're just going to make this a button or we're, you know, um, and, and because I was there from the very beginning of the project, I knew what the intended outcomes were, both from a business perspective and an end user perspective. Um, so I was able to fill those gaps on the fly. Um, and the other thing I did while I was QA testing, which was not, and now in hindsight, I don't think anyone ever asked me to do this. <laughs> but I was testing, I was also going off script to test the system to try to break it. Mm-hmm. So, and, and in doing so, I found so many bugs. I logged so many bugs that the tech lead was like, told me that I should never be allowed to do QA because <laughs> <laughs> I just found so many problems. Right. And, um, but, but I think that speaks to, um, I mean, even now, like I'll use an app or a website, right? And then I get into a situation myself as an end user and I'm like, okay, they did not test this. They did not Mm -hmm. think that someone might hit the browser back button or, um, or, you know, leave the app and then come back in, right? Like in the middle of something, right? Um, So, um, yeah, I, I really feel like I, you know, I, I can't say for sure if that was ever part of some spoken, you know, UX process that a UX resources, a UX resource needs to be at the, at the QA stage as well. Um, or there needs to be some kind of protocol, right. To, to make sure that you're really um, hitting the system in a way that people actually would use it in the field. Um, but um, yeah, I would, I would say like, you know, that's one of the, one of my fondest memories as a UX professional, um, and then also another time that uh, a someone on my someone on um, in my department, uh, one person was a visual designer, another person was a front end developer. I, I just remember, like you know, I was seeing, I saw them one day. They were like huddled over the visual designer's desk. They were doing something, very excited. They called me over like <laughs> later, 
And they proclaimed to me that they had invented a new way to sort search results. So they give me imagine like, you know, <laughs> your e-commerce website, right? It was for sneakers. Um, and they had come up with this really beautiful, intricate way of displaying the results, sort of like not in a linear fashion. Um, and they were very proud of their accomplishment. I took one look at it and I was like, yeah, but then what happens if you go to the next page? Mm-hmm. How does then, how do you then sort, how does the sort order, like that breaks the sort order, right? But the paradigm, right? Of like what people are thinking, like you're just gonna confuse people. And um, and I and I think I, I use a, an example um, as an example of when you don't have on your team that dedicated resource of someone who's trained and has that skill set and expertise and looking at something and being like, yeah, that that's not how people think, right? Or that's not right. how it's right. usability perspective. It just won't work. Um, then yeah, you're potentially you know wasting resources time, mm-hmm. I mean, resources and time, like, you know, trying to, you know, figuring it out the the hard way that something doesn't work. Um, and the funny thing about that is that visual designer now works at IDEO and the front end developer has been at Google for, for many years as sort of this like um, rock star internet famous <laughs> developer. So, I mean, and it it just goes to show that everyone can be and should be good at what they do, right? But then we need to make sure that there is space for UX professionals who are good at what they do and allow them the space to come in and be part of that conversation (laughs) instead of, you know, going off and doing things on your own um, and not having that expertise at the table. Absolutely. That's my that's my case for <laughs> why we need UX Very well instead said. of erasing UX. <laughs> Very well said. And you're probably going to get to expand on uh, UX erasure. You were the first person I heard say that. I fell in love with it. I share that phrase every opportunity I get. And the next question is probably going to, you're probably going to want to go down that path again. If you do, you do. If you don't, you don't. But I'm, just, I'm sure. expecting that you might. I'm, ho- I'm sort of hoping that you might. I'm, I'm excited because I want to hear more about it too. What observations about the discipline stand out to you today? As you observe UX from a, from a, uh, from a top the wall, so to speak, and just taking a look at how things are flowing, how things are functioning, the ebbs and flows, the happenings, the good things, the bad things. What, what are your observations? What are your takeaways today as you look at, at what's happening? Um, there are so many things I actually made like a list of <laughs> things I could answers that I could give to this question. Oh my goodness. You're, I mean, your questions are amazing, Darren. So, so thank you. Cause I mean, it actually forced me to put down on paper <laughs> all of these thoughts that I have. Um, I would say, okay, from a, from a user research standpoint, one of the things that I have noticed could be just my opinion. I have not researched this <laughs> to um, to say for sure one way or another. Is I have noticed that it's very easy for folks new to the field, getting into the field, or you know they they know they need to talk to users. Um, they they conflate user research with just talking to users, yep. right? They think user research is just oh I just go on the street, 
flag somebody down, ask mm-hmm. them a bunch of questions. Like, would you use this? Would you not use this? Right. Yep. Um, <laughs> and, um, and it, and I think what has contributed to this mentality um, actually came out of the lean startup movement and the whole like quote unquote, get out of the building um, command. I don't know <laughs> what else to call it. Um, they commanded everyone to get out of the building um, to just talk to people um, with nothing, no other guidance, no training, no practice, nothing. Um, and because I have been a mentor at some of these hackathons that did this, um, I saw firsthand, you know, like people would get out of the building, come back an hour or two later and be at a total loss for what questions were they supposed to ask? And then what were they supposed to do with the answers that they got? (laughs) Like the shitty answer, they got shitty answers (laughs) in return from asking shitty questions. And then, so they're just like, I am, I'm totally confused. Like I have no idea what to do. Like, what was the point of that? Right. And, um, and actually that was part of the reason why I started giving a talk called, uh, quote unquote, the right way to talk to users. And, and my whole thing around it is like, it's, it's not talking to users, it's listening to people. Um, like that's, that's the first thing you need to do. Um, and, um, and then the other thing about research that I've noticed is that there seems to be an overemphasis on doing, on evaluative research, right? Like usability testing, Mm -hmm. um, AB testing, right? Um, like let's figure out, you know, what variation of this homepage or landing page or checkout page, you know, will make an incremental difference, (laughs) right? Um, which, you know, which has its time and place, right? Like if you're working at a very large company and like a difference, like a, you know, a 2% difference in conversion leads to millions of dollars, right? Like then, right. Of course that makes sense. Um, but if you want to innovate in a space, you know, like develop something that's actually a game changer um, and be competitive as a company that way, like you can't, you're not going to evaluate your way to innovation. You have to engage in generative research. Um, and, and I feel like that's where there could and should be more of an emphasis in some, in some cases. And, um, and it's so fortunate that we spend so much time and resources in our industry on, I mean, splitting hairs otherwise, right? Like, so. Yep. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> that's pretty sad. Pretty sad. But uh, it happens. That that's remind me of the uh, the thing that pops up on LinkedIn all the time. Actually, it's it's it has died down quite a bit. Uh, oh. Which one of these designs is better, A or B? Oh my goodness. No, there's there's no context here. Um UX is way more than this. It's not just A or B. Um I remember someone once who was professing himself to be a big UX consultant and he did one of those A B things and he was trying to uh, trying to present himself to the UX population at large as being a thought leader. And he presented something and it was the first time, one of the first times I ever saw one of those, which is better A or B. And, and I thought he really wanted advice. So 
<laughs> so maybe I was being naive because it's one of the first time I saw it. So I said, well, it's not about that. And I pointed out all the accessibility issues. I mean, you asked. So these oh. colors that you used, none of these colors actually pass uh, uh, the test on the web AIM contrast checker. So if you're asking about these colors, this is what's going on. And I did a laundry list. I mean, my laundry list, I said, I found like seven, eight different things. And I listed them all out. Considering what he showed us, eight findings was a laundry list. And he completely ignored me. And he gravitated to everyone else saying, this is great, this is great, this is great, thank you for doing this. Which is another issue with the UX arena that um, um, people are asking opinions when you ask an opinion of an uninformed person, what in the world do you expect to get from that? And, and so asking people's opinions versus, as you talk about research, asking opinions versus looking at the performance factors, which, which interface works better, which task flow is smoother, which one has lower cognitive load, which one is more intuitive. And these are the things we need to be trying to find out with our research as opposed to trying to find out whether or not the red button or the green button is the most popular, uh, which, which says nothing. And it really does not solve issues that we should be trying to get at as UX professionals. I, I hope people you know, hear this. Uh, if you've never been a part of that, that you, you think about retooling. And, and, and don't, don't get flustered if we're talking about something that you're guilty of. If you find out you're guilty, good. We've all been guilty of something at some point in time. And then if we own it, that gives us a chance to be better. And, and it's all about getting better. If, there, if there's a mantra for UX, it's the word better. Let's get better at what we do. Let's make our designs better. Let's get sharper. Let's be more grounded. Let's be more emotionally intelligent. And not only do we make things better for ourselves, but we make things better for our users, for our stakeholders, and for the discipline at large. Everybody wins. Hey, if we can just accept things instead of worried about. Yeah. I mean, what you just said about what you just said about asking for people's opinions versus looking at the performance. I, I call that the mistake of taking an affirmation as validation. Mm -hmm. Right. Yes. Like, I mean, this is so many people run into this, right? Yep. Like where you ask for feedback, people are saying you are great or what you're doing. Oh, this cause is great. Or like, Oh, your efforts are great. But that's not the same as validation, right? Yep. That this actually works and this is performing or this is actually what someone is willing to pay for. Um, and, and yeah, that's also, um, that's also a critical mistake that a lot of people make in yep. doing research. Yeah. I know we're short on time. So I'm going to jump to our, our standard closing question. And it is, what advice do you have for today's up-and-comers in the UX discipline? This is our sign-off question for today. Yeah, for me, this this the answer to this question is, um, is I had alluded to this earlier, is, is to be with people, right? Get outside of the tech bubble. Get outside mm -hmm. of your own bubble. Um, find ways to get out of your comfort zone. Um, for, I went to a UX conference this past year and during one of the speed networking rounds, um, someone asked me, well, what's, what do you think is like a critical skill set for someone in UX? And I said, a critical 
skill set is you have to seek, like you have to want to be proven wrong. Mm-hmm. And as soon as I said that, he was like, <laughs> this person was like, looked at me in shock. I was like, but, but why do you want it? Why would anyone want to be proven wrong? Like that's, that, was, that was what he said. Right. And, and I said, but, and I was like, well, because UX is getting at the truth. Like we, like my mantra for UX is to get at the truth, right. That it is about uncovering truths and like, you know, layers and deeper and deeper layers of what is the truth of why people are doing what they're doing. Um, and that might, you know, the why can look totally different, even though the behavior is the same. Mm-hmm. And if you don't understand the why, and you're always just focusing on the outcome, um, then you don't really understand people. Yep. You don't really understand where they're coming from. Um, and, and I find that I think too many folks in the tech industry, um, you know, they don't want to go outside their comfort zone. They're, they're, well, first of all, they might be a little too comfortable <laughs> where they are. Um, so they don't want to leave <laughs> and, you know, kind of put yourself out there to be proven wrong. Um, but that, that's where the answers to game changing innovation live. Right. Um, and, and may, I mean, it could be precisely because too many people feel uncomfortable doing that, that we don't have more meaningful innovation, um, right now. Um, but you know, but we need to, we, that, that just means we need to train more people. We need to encourage more people. We need to, um, you know, I, I, I called it, um, in an article I wrote that we don't need more UX designers. We need user center design warriors. <laughs> uh, yeah. We need more warriors. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, and not, and not just folks who are going to be in the industry and just, um, you know, either be short order cooks um, or just be told to, you know, stay in their lane or stay in their box. Right. Cause that, that's, that doesn't serve, people. And at the end of the day, it's about the people. Yep. Absolutely. Absolutely. Fantastic. So that is, that's going to bring us to our, to our close. Cause I know you gotta, you gotta get out of here. I got, I gotta help. I gotta help with that. Uh, Cause we could go on and on and on and yes. on and on and on. But yes, this, is, this has been fantastic. <laughs> I want you to come back. We, we got other things that we could talk about. I know I would love to come have you come back and just talk about just the research aspect and that talk that you said you delivered, I think that that's something that that'd be great to dive into. And I'll research now because now I'm a user research manager now, and research is at the forefront of my mind. And, and I'm I'm shifting a little bit to research ops. I'll never take my eye off of UX as a whole, but I am shifting my attention to research ops, especially finding out that I've been doing it for years but didn't call it that. So I think I need to go back and rebuild the sandcastle, so to speak. Uh, take what I had build it back up in the, in the image of research ops and make sure that I check all my boxes to understand who I am and what I need to, to do to be better at what I do. There's that word again, better. So, yeah. <laughs> but I loved having you on today. People are going to love listening to this and taking in your, 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 your viewpoints about different things. This is the kind of stuff that I think needs to be heard that takes the, that takes people forward and it takes the discipline forward. More voices. There's a lot of voices out there, folks. I say it all the time that are talking, 
but there's only certain voices that need to be heard. And I believe that Karen Lynn is one of those voices that needs to be heard today. So thank you for joining thank me. Thank you so much, today. Sharon. Yes. And sharing with the UX community. So that is all the time we have for today, folks. So we're going to sign off here and we have more uh, talking shop segments to come in the weeks to come. I'm, I'm taking uh, some time off from some of the series talk uh, and just getting some of the voices out there and helping people to hear folks that have something to share with the community and show folks this. This is not about just me, folks. This is about the discipline. Uh, so that's what I want to do. I want to help vault the discipline. So that's it. This is Darren Hood, the host of The World of UX, signing off. Happy UXing, everybody. Thanks for joining us for this session of CX of M Radio. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to the show and visit cxofm.org for more resources.